0: When we talk about eschatology, we all generally have kind of our go-to passages. Um, Natural places to go in regard to last things would, of course, be the book of Revelation, looking at Daniel's 70th week as it unfolds, or Ezekiel 38 and 39, and the battle that he describes uh, that localized conflict where the nations led by Russia come against Israel. Um, Of course, we want to think about Matthew 24, Jesus' grand discussion about the last days uh, leading up to his return many of the things he describes there find fuller description in the book of Revelation, which of course, is the revelation of Jesus Christ as given to John. Um, you think about uh, Daniel, of course, you know, throughout the book, in particular, we look at passages like chapter two, chapter seven, chapter nine, and of course even beyond. Um, think about, of course, First Second Thessalonians, you know, the great discussion on the rapture in First Thessalonians chapter Four or the Day of the Lord and such. we consider ch- uh, Second Thessalonians chapter two as he describes the uh, uh gives a good description of the Antichrist paralleled really only by maybe uh, Revelation thirteen in regard to some of the uh, information and insights that are given regarding this leader that will come up and bring the nations together against Christ at his return, as described in Revelation nineteen. So there's lots and lots of passages that we go to, uh, naturally, and, and of course, rightly so, as we have this discussion about last things or eschatology. One place that um, uh, also deserves a place in that discussion, but is not as often quoted or referred to, is uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, 2 Peter is written by the Apostle Peter, who is an elder statesman at this point. He's not far away from his own demise, his martyrdom for the sake of the gospel, And uh, one of the things that I love about Peter's writing is that, and in particular, as we're looking at 2 Peter chapter 3, so, you know, grab your Bible. We're going to look into this in just a moment. But as Peter's writing, uh, very similarly to Paul, he's not just talking about last things, but he also gives great encouragement toward believers as to how they should live in the context of the last days. In other words, as we look for Jesus... What do we live like? What should we focus on? What should you know? How should this impact us in our testimony, uh, and those kinds of things? Paul speaks about this in terms of his couching his discussions of eschatology within the general letters to the Thessalonians, uh, the first and second letter to the Thessalonians, and that it's not just about eschatology but also how believers live and the expectation of Christ's coming in that. Well, Peter does the same thing here in 2 Peter. And in chapter 3, I thought we might uh, it might do us some good as we continually seek to round out our understanding about last things and what the uh, conditions and culture will look like in those days. Peter gives us some wonderful insight into this as well, and it just does us well to add this to our growing knowledge of last things. And so I thought what we would do uh, in this episode, and probably maybe uh, over the course of a couple of posts, uh, take a look at chapter 3 here of Second Peter as he discusses the topic. Now, Peter, just prior to where we're going to start in chapter 3, uh, again, somewhat like Paul, has been talking about false teachers and the need to beware of them, uh, to be aware of the fact that they're going to be on the scene. Jesus, of course, himself warned about this prolifically throughout Matthew 24. And so it's it, it's certainly fitting that other uh, New Testament writers would key in on this as well. We see that theme of false teachers, uh, a prominent one in, in the New Testament. Well, here in chapter 3 of Second Peter, I'm going to go ahead and just dive into the passage, and we'll spend, again, maybe this episode and one more uh, at least, I'm kind of imagining we'll we'll kind of get through this in a couple of posts. So let's go ahead and dive in and uh, and add to our knowledge base of last things. Peter here says, "Beloved, I now write you uh, to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder." that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us the apostles of the lord of our lord and savior knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying where is the promise of his coming for since the fathers fell asleep all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation for this they willfully forget that by the word of uh, the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are preserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as... Uh, as one day, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and So Peter begins to speak uh, uh, once again, as we mentioned, to the idea of the last days, and he describes a little bit of the conditions that are going to be um, that are going to be prevalent during that period of time. Um, and, and one of the primary things that he points out is that there are going to be scoffers, uh, mockers, those who poke fun at people who would suggest that the Lord is coming and coming soon, because after all, hasn't the world basically just gone on like it always has? In other words, why should we be thinking that Jesus is coming in our day? After all, things are just rolling along like they always have. And so they even say, where is the promise of his coming? Uh, and that kind of thing. Now, this is something that, in my view, uh, there are a couple of directions that this question and even some of this mocking come from. Uh, one, naturally, is the, that of, believe, uh, of unbelievers, the idea that those who are outside of faith in Christ, those who have no expectation of Jesus really coming, uh, would tend to mock those who would be looking with anticipation for his coming. Now, that's you and I today who are facing the brunt of that from unbelievers, because if you're passionate about seeing the Lord, if you are excited about the prospect of His coming to snatch us away and, and then ultimately to establish His kingdom in that, then that probably finds its way out in your life. You know, uh, chances are you share about those things, that so you have a motivation to live for Jesus, to talk about Him and His coming, um, that your life is less and less attached to this world and is more and more attached to the one that is to come. This is the natural tendency of those who are looking for Jesus coming, which I would suggest should be true of all believers. I think every Christian should be looking with great anticipation to seeing the Lord. And I don't just mean that when we die, we're going to stand before him one day, but I mean looking forward to his coming to get his bride and excited about the prospect of his setting up his kingdom. Uh, we have made quite a thing of Jesus' encouragement and teaching of his disciples, his followers, his uh, his apostles and and such, to pray for that very thing. You remember how the disciples wanted Jesus to teach them to pray, and among the things that he taught them was to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, And at the risk of sounding a little bit redundant, let me just suggest that that is a hugely radical thing to pray for. Lord, we want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want your kingdom to come. Well, what does that mean for all of the existing kingdoms and the existing order of things that are particularly counter heaven's culture? Well, it means that we're asking God to end all that. It means we're asking God to set up his kingdom and put an end to all worldly dominion. Uh, we've spent a pretty fair amount of time over the last couple of years talking about Daniel's prophecy as, uh, well, Nebuchadnezzar's technically in, in Daniel chapter two, but then Daniel's prophecy, which essentially focuses on the same thing, but from a different, with different imagery uh, in Daniel chapter seven, the idea of this kingdom, this rock cut without hands coming to uh, be established and, and ultimately to, uh, be like a mountain covering the whole earth in that thing. And and uh, the Ancient of Days, as Daniel would see in, in chapter 7, coming to establish his kingdom, putting down all others in this kind of thing, conquering the last kingdom under Antichrist, signaling the end of man's dominion over the earth, but ultimately Christ's kingdom coming to supplant all of that. Well, that's what we're asking for when we pray that prayer in Matthew 6.10. We're asking God to do that. Uh, and and I, I, I guess I emphasize that because... You know, I grew up in a tradition that we just prayed that kind of rote. You know, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And we just go on, and we would just repeat that prayer. Never occurred to me what I was actually praying. Uh, I mean, some of the sentiment kind of. Stu- I mean, obviously the words stuck in my head, right? But I never really stopped to think about what I was actually asking for when I prayed that. Well, I'm I'm much more keenly aware of that now, and I'm excited about it. Uh, it was, it's not just a rote prayer for me. It's a deep desire of my heart that God set his kingdom up, that Jesus return and establish that millennial kingdom. Um, but there are those outside who are saying, well, where is that? You know, it's not here yet. Why are you waiting for it? It's not coming is basically what's implied there. Well, non-believers naturally say that. And not just because they don't believe they don't want it. You know, when, when Antichrist stands at the head of a global, globally unified body of people who stand against Christ's return, they are wanting to resist the answer to that prayer. While we're praying for it, they don't want it. So it makes perfect sense that non-believers wouldn't want it, because they're earth dwellers, they're attached to this world, this is all there is. But surprisingly, the second prong from which uh, we sometimes... Uh, see this question asked is actually from believers. Uh, some years ago, I worked at a job with uh, some friends there who are Christians, but they had no real, one in particular comes to mind, had no real sense of Jesus coming. Um, and we would have discussions and he literally would would almost essentially say this very thing. Well, it's like he's not coming for a thousand years. It's like, why do we keep saying he's coming and all that? kind Things are just like they've always been I almost couldn't believe he was saying it, because I'm, I'm like, man, have you read Second Peter chapter 3? Because you sound just like the people he's talking about here. Surprisingly, believers themselves will take that posture. Uh, they will sort of uh, look at the world around them and see that nothing's really changed in a while. Basically, the world is a lot like it's always been. Why are we expecting Jesus to come in our lifetime? Why, why isn't it a thousand years from now? That kind of thing. Now there are reasons why believers think this. Um, some of it has to do with eschatology. You know, uh, there are there are some who hold uh, like an amillennial view that that you know really the first coming and the, the time between the first and second coming is really sort of symbolically intended to be understood as the millennium and and where the the, the Christian faith is going forth and all this kind of thing or some variation of that. Uh, that's one reason why. There's no real expectation for that thousand-year millennial ram to be established because we're kind of assuming it's sort of taking place now between the first and second coming. Um, others have a different eschatology from that as well. They maybe believe that Jesus um, just, that they just take a, a, diff- a figurative view of the whole book of Revelation for one reason or another. Um, let me suggest to you that um, that. The disciples apparently really believed in Jesus' coming, and uh, if you think about Paul or Peter, they came from a historically Jewish background. Their theology was heavily informed. Their understanding of God and his workings uh, and his purposes and plans was deeply informed by the Old Testament scriptures, in which you find a vast, rich wealth of discussion, on the millennial kingdom. Matter of fact, we know this is true because after Jesus rose from the dead as he was about to ascend to heaven in Acts chapter one, matter of fact, let's turn there and just look at it for a minute. Acts chapter one, I get very excited talking about this topic and it's kind of fun to go into a book that we don't typically spend a lot of time in for this regard. But in Acts, uh, speaking about second Peter, but here in Acts chapter one, uh, Notice here what the interaction takes place between Jesus and the disciples, uh, starting in verse 4 of chapter 1 of the book of Acts. And being assembled together with them, he, Jesus that is, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then their response to him is this. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, Jesus does not diminish the fact that there is, in fact, a kingdom coming. Remember, he told his disciples to pray for it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Matthew 6.10. Well, in verse 7, he goes on here in Acts 1 and says, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put into his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And then he goes on and he ascends. Back in 2 Peter, we'll we'll go back there in a moment. But Jesus doesn't in any way diminish their kingdom fervor or their desire to see the kingdom established. He just simply said, it's not for you to know the times when that takes place. The book of Revelation is predominantly a book of God's Bringing the earth under judgment, leading up to the return of Christ to establish a kingdom that will last a thousand years. Um, the Old Testament, Isaiah, um, for example, is a great place to look at this. The later chapters in Isaiah, as well as some of the other chapters as well. But in particular, we see toward the end of the book of Isaiah, there is much mention about what the, the the millennial kingdom age is going to look like. Um, the lion lies down with the lamb, and such, and 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 swords being beaten into uh, plowshares and such. You know, the whole idea that there's going to be peace. There's not going to be wars and fighting during this time. Um, Zechariah speaks about the idea of the nations gathering together at Jerusalem once a year to celebrate the the Feast of Sukkot and to worship and that kind of thing. Um, There is discussion about people living extended, extremely long periods of time, whereas if somebody were to die at 100 years old, it would seem as though an infant was dying. Uh, It's uh, so, uh, so long uh, are, are the expected lifespans to be during that stretch of time. Uh, you can read these things, and I encourage you to do so. Um, there is a very clear sense that Jesus will be coming back and will be establishing his kingdom. There is a very clear sense that that is the expectation of Jesus' very own disciples. Um There's no reason to think Paul didn't have that same expectation, even though he spent more of his time talking about the conditions leading up to that period of time under the Antichrist and such. But when you piece together everything that the Scripture says about it, unless you particularly take a metaphorical approach or an allegorical approach uh, to interpreting these things, um, the plain sense of the text is that there is a kingdom coming and that we're supposed to be living in in an expectation of it. Uh, And I've made quite a thing about the importance of not just sort of defaulting to an allegorical approach to the scripture when it comes to um, uh, apocalyptic writing in the scripture or descriptions of last things. Um, In fact, uh, a plain sense view of the text helps it to make a lot more sense in light of the overall scope of the Old and New Testament, uh, uh, what the Old and New Testament have to say about the subject. But here back in 2 Peter, he says that there are actually scoffers who are saying, where is the, where is the sign of his coming? Where, where is it? It's been good. Things have been going on like they have from the beginning. And Peter, in, in, in an effort to make the case that this is not to be taken figuratively, but Christ is coming, he says, you know, people don't remember that there was this global flood that wiped out mankind previously. Uh, God intervened in human affairs in massively dramatic fashion once before in the flood. He said, people forget about that. They think that life has gone on just like it always has. It hasn't. There was a point at which God brought judgment down upon the world and started it over. Well, that's what's going to happen again. As a matter of fact, Peter would talk about how the elements will melt with a fervent heat. We'll see that in the next uh, episode as we continue through the passage talking about the day of the Lord. But here, when when we talk about the Lord's coming, Peter starts that discussion by making sure we understand that this is a literal thing that is happening. Christ will come again. Uh, Now, Peter's not talking all about the kingdom and all that kind of stuff, although we know it's in his mind because he was among the group asking about it back in Acts chapter 1. Here, he's just simply talking about two very simple points that need to be embraced as being True, and these things will happen. Number one is that Christ is going to come again, and secondly, the day of the Lord when He comes, ultimately, that period of time, uh, which I would equate with the time leading up to His return and His actual return, is going to be a time of actual judgment. Now, if you've been following uh, on Sunday mornings with this at all, you've been going through the book of Revelation, and again, a large portion of the book is the description of the day of the Lord unfolding. And so Um, there is no biblical sense in which we should not believe these things are going to be. And this is an important encouragement for believers. Uh, We ought not think that these are things that are mythical or fable-like or just metaphorical. These are things that the disciples themselves, those who knew Jesus and listened to him and walked with him, those who were given inspiration of the Holy Spirit to record the things they recorded in the New Testament, believed that Jesus is coming back. Uh, so for believers in our day, we should be living with that expectation. Uh, he will go on. We're gonna come back to um, to this passage and kind of finish up. I'm gonna kind of wrap it up for today. But we're gonna come back to where we left off and continue to make our way through the passage. But let me just leave with this thought. For those who would say, well, you know, why should we think he's coming in this day? It's not for a long time off or things have been going on like they have been. Peter says, look, you know, for the Lord, time is irrelevant. You know, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. There are some who make a big thing out of this idea being taken literally. Like, in other words, we should see each of the thousand years that have passed as being like a day to the Lord. And so somehow we're going to equate the fact that in the 7,000th year, you know, or that kind of thing. I don't really know if that's what Peter was trying to imply from that. I mean, it's 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 it sounds like a figure of speech the way he says it. I'm not going to discount that there could be some truth to that. But I don't think it's necessary to have to see it that way. I think it's just simply at the very least in implying that what we think is things are going on forever for like for the Lord it's like no time has passed really. It's just it's God's outside of time altogether. In other words, God is not sort of just working within time, he is using time as a tool and he is deciding when things are going to happen. Uh, How we view it is irrelevant. You know, If we think it's many thousands of years, it makes no difference. God is going to do it at exactly the right time. There's a passage in Romans in our last post we talked about uh, in Romans chapter five, uh, just this beautiful understanding of God's love and, and all of this kind of thing. Well, in the passage we read there, it says that, Uh, At just the right time, Christ came into the world and died for the ungodly, right? Uh, In other words, at exactly the time that God decided it was time, well, that's how God works. He's not worried about how much time has gone by. He's already decided when these things are going to unfold. For us to sort of blow it off, because it seems like it's been forever, is really kind of uh, a very misguided approach. We should be living in the daily expectation. That seems to be the overarching uh, perspective of Scripture. Um, The master delays his coming. There's never an encouragement to view Jesus' return as being delayed. Uh, But rather, we should be living with the expectation that he might come today. So that being said, I'm going to stop right there, and we'll pick it up right about verse um, 7 or 8 next time. But, um, but Father, we just pray that you would help us to have a deep, uh, fervent excitement about the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom, to set things right, uh, to accomplish the final purposes for the earth and that that you have in mind. We just uh, pray that we would not fall into sort of the laxed view that, oh, he's delaying his coming and there's no reason to think it could be anytime soon or anything like that. It would appear that the scriptures tell us that Jesus will come and snatch away his bride prior to the wrath of God coming down upon the earth. Well, as we see the world becoming more and more ripe for that wrath, um, we know that Jesus coming for his bride is even sooner. And so we pray that you help us to take on the mindset of looking with anticipation, hands on the plow, feet on the ground, walking and working, but with an eye toward heaven, looking, thinking maybe today is the day that Jesus will come for us. After he does, there's going to be some period of time before he, eh, just whether it's short or how long it's going to be, we don't know exactly. But once it's time for that kingdom to come, it's going to come. And so, Father, we just pray again that you would light within us an excitement, a passion, a fervor, a fire, an excitement to, to see Jesus. We pray that nothing in this world would entice us so much that we would want him to delay his coming. God forbid we should want him to hold off on coming. Uh, A bride would never want her bridegroom to delay his coming and and want to just, you know, do whatever she wants to do and just hoping that he doesn't come too soon. But no, she wants him to come now. Help us to have that kind of a mindset. Help us as a bride to, to long deeply for our bridegroom to come and to get us. Father, we are so excited at the prospect of a world that is free of all of the evil and wickedness that we've just sort of come to take for granted and get used to living with. Sometimes we forget that there's a world coming where that won't be allowed anymore, where none of that will be tolerated. It will be dealt with immediately as Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem with a rod of iron. Father, we pray that nothing clouds our hearts and our hearts desire to see that world come. But rather, Father, we want to pray as Jesus taught his disciples to, your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.